0: Good ideas are like red wine. They need time in the cellar for refinement. Here's where I keep mine. Welcome to 55 Degrees. When I was a young boy, I was riding in the back seat of our family sedan and I re- recall asking my dad what a certain word meant. I don't recall the word. But I recall the reaction from my father. I don't ever want to hear you say that word again. Now for sure it wasn't a good word, probably off-color, maybe a swear word. But I learned that my dad did not like that word and did not want me using it. I had to watch my language. I walked away from the church as we know it about 15 years ago. It was actually an easy decision for me It was harder on those around me that did not understand it. They took it personally, like an act of judgment on them and what they held dear. But my decision was not about them. It was about me and coming to a place where I felt stagnant and the setting and the surroundings of the church as we know it was not going to help me advance to the place I knew I needed to go. I was growing increasingly restless with myself. I was leading college students to better understand their faith, all the while mine was fading. I was telling 15-year-old stories. There was nothing in my life that required any step of faith, and so I knew I had to leave. I had a vision at that time that served as my marker for the decision to to depart and strike out on a new journey of faith. I was in the building of the churches we know it that I attended one afternoon, making copies of chord charts for band practice later that day. As I stood over the copier, I saw out the window there was a man standing on the south lawn of the church property. I could see him waving as if to say, come outside and talk with me. So I left everything there in the office and walked out to investigate. As I got closer, I saw that it was Jesus. "'A huge smile on his face, as always when he greets me. "'He held a large ring of keys in his hand. "'As I greeted him, he asked me how I was doing, "'and I said, not very good, "'and he seemed to ignore my answer, "'as he also has been known to do. "'I asked him what he had in his hand, "'and he replied, these are the keys to men's hearts. "'I want to give them to you. "'I want you to use them to set them free.' And he handed me the ring of keys and gave this parting word. Now don't go back in that building. And he pointed to the western horizon. Go that way. And he disappeared. I wrote this down and pondered its meaning. I knew that it was an affirmation of my decision to leave the church as we know it. Pointing west indicated that I was about to walk into the unknown, but that was what my heart was craving. Like it was said of Abraham... When he was called to go to a place where he would later receive his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. I did not know where I was going either, but I knew I was headed in the right direction. You've heard me say the dream is for the dreamer, and the image of the keys was no different. It was an image for me first. If I was to ever set others free, I had to know how to use those keys to get my own heart free. I had to get healthy again. And like everything my father does with me in a dream or a vision, there is a process that needs to unfold. And I must learn to trust that process. Like Daniel, I sealed up the vision for the proper time. And I have been in, in that process of discovering more and more freedom. And I think I now have a little better idea on how those keys in my hand work. Irish poet David White has a statement about poetry and why we need it. He says, the language we possess in that world is not large enough for the territory that we've now entered. This is an apt description of my choice to leave the church as we know it. I had begun to cross over into a new territory, and as I entered, I found I was illiterate in it. I was in a new place with an old language, and I was not about to turn and retreat. I knew I had to begin learning a new language that fit the vastness of the new land of faith that I was exploring. As I started learning this new language of faith, I saw that there were old words that I had no use for any longer. They had no functional meaning in my new territory. And so in this episode, I want to tell you about some of those words and phrases that I have jettisoned overboard. Being away from the church as we know it for so long, I became keenly aware of my two different languages. From my past experience, I still understand the old language, but I'm glad I don't speak that way any longer. As a writer, words are all I have to communicate with. I have a little nuance in my recorded voice on this podcast But you can't see my hands or if my face is animated or not. That is why I script my podcast. I don't want to wing it and run the risk of miscommunication. I craft the words to my liking with much intention. And you might have noticed some of this objective. For example, I don't use the word Christian any longer to describe my life in the new territory in which I have entered. Christian has too much baggage attached. The word is immediately negative in many ways to many people. And as a writer that is limited to words to get my point across, that's one word I choose not to use. Instead, I use person of faith because this makes more sense to me because faith is the central identifier of one who follows Jesus. It requires faith to walk with him. And there was much about my previous living in the churches we know it that had nothing to do with faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, and I'm afraid there are many who claim the word Christian and have zero faith involved. So I chose another word. I'm a communicator, not a conservative. The only thing I want to conserve is more and more faith. Language constantly evolves, and if mine doesn't evolve with my growing faith, I create dissonance and incongruence. It's important to evolve with it, or else the truth will be miscommunicated, and everyone is left with misunderstanding. To my father's generation, the the meaning of the word to screw was sexual. If you screwed somebody, it meant you had sex with them. Today, it has a completely different connotation. To screw someone means to take advantage or rip them off. It can also mean to make a mistake, like, oh, I really screwed up. I remember when the word sucks also had a sexual implication. In the 1980s, when I was in college and I first remember this word taking hold, the student section in the basketball arena had a chant when they were unhappy with the officiating. Someone would start, hey ref, you suck my dick. You suck, my dick, and so on and so on. Somewhere, though, the word suck morphed into meaning something very different. Now, if something sucks, it just doesn't work properly. And my role as a father helps me understand my relationship with my heavenly father. I listen to the language I use with my kids, and I ask if I, it felt like this was something he would say to me, and this has been an eye-opener, Though my children are grown, I'm still their father, and I operate in a different role now. I have influence in their lives, but not like I did when they were three. They know how to dress themselves and make their beds, but I don't go to their apartment now to see if they even made their bed or not. That would be stupid of me. I don't care if they make their bed or not. It's a non-issue. But there are matters that I, as a dad, want for them. I want them to make good financial decisions. I want them to be kind to others. But I want more than anything to have a relationship with them as maturing adults. Not as I did when they were small children. I want to interact in their lives as their world grows more complex and see them grow in wisdom. This is deep in my heart as a father. As I grow older and see this through the lens of my heavenly father, I've come to see that he feels the same toward me. I feel nothing that does not stem from Him. I am made in His image. The goodness that flows out of me is rooted in His nature and His goodness. I am only bearing that to my world. Here are some other words that I have no use for in my new territory. As a dad, I would never want my kids to talk this way around me. And I can't imagine my Heavenly Father feeling any different. We all have... ways to refer to ourselves especially when we don't feel the best about ourselves it can be in vogue to speak poorly of ourselves in faith circles it's a false humility mostly however this is a this is a language being used that can do more harm than good and it grieves me when i hear someone refer to themselves as oh i'm just a sinner saved by grace or you know me i'm a sinning saint or Oh, thank God, I'm just a forgiven mess. See, names like this can be descriptive for a time or a season, but over the course of life, if these continue to identify the life of the person of faith, it's fair to question why. Why do I think this? I get it from my role as a father. I don't ever want my children living in their past relationship with me. Imagine one of my kids introducing themselves to someone Yeah, I'm my dad's problem child. I'm a pain in his ass, but boy, he sure puts up with me. That still tells me there is shame involved. That still says they don't fully trust me yet. They don't trust my longing for them to become fully mature and join me in the work of my heart. I'd much rather hear them say, yeah, Kevin Shin is my dad and I love being his kid and we have the best relationship now and I love him more than ever. Have you ever wondered what heaven will be like when it comes to our past sins, failures, and transgressions? Have you ever wondered how you will feel about those things? Will we always carry a sense of regret that we should have or could have done better? Here's my thought on that. Scripture gives us word pictures to describe these feelings. And one of my favorites is the scene in Revelation 4 Amid the apocalyptic narrative is inserted this scene. It says, And there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And it goes on to describe the awesome setting using rich and colorful language describing this throne and all that surrounded it. The activity and attention was all about the one on on the throne. He was front and center. It was because of the one on the throne that everyone, every angel, every creature, every being was fixated on that throne. What that tells me is there isn't much room for self-absorption. Everything we carry into that place gets transformed into gratitude and awe. The two prime elements of worship. I can no longer focus on the past and all its failure. All, I can, all of that's behind me now. I've been made new. All I can see is the one who made it all right. The glorious one who shines forever and ever. At this point, whatever I've done in the past doesn't really matter. It disappears in the presence of the one on the throne. All that matters is the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the one seated on that throne. And since I have been commissioned with a prayer by Jesus to continually ask that his kingdom be made manifest on earth in the same way that it is in heaven, I can live with a new focus, a forward-looking vision of this reality. I can bring a vision of the one on the throne to the here and now so that my attention always comes back to him and not on my shortcomings. Worship has this kind of power. This is why I balk against taking a name that won't be used around that throne. I'm not going to be known as sinning saint in that place. I will be known as worshiper. I will join the angels and the other living creatures to allow this to become my new identity. There will be no room for self-focus or deprecation. Only gratitude and awe. So why not get started on that awareness now? He has made it clear to me that he doesn't want me talking negatively like that about myself any longer. Besides the displacement caused by the one on the throne, I think there's another reason I don't want to use negative language about myself. And I can hear my, how my father is telling me, don't use that word anymore. I don't want to hear you speak that way again. Watch your language. I call it the language of rescue. And it's ubiquitous in faith circles, especially in the music sung in them. It stems from an assumption that I'm just a terrible person, weak in every way, thrown and tossed about by the winds and the waves of the pressures of the world. And I can't really hope for overwhelming victory. The best I can hope for is to hang on and just wait for God to save me. This is also a seasonal language. There are times when i find myself with my back against the wall discouraged lonely beaten down but i should not expect this to be the norm of my day-to-day belief i recently went through a season of being overwhelmed but i'm not there any longer so i don't use that language any longer i cried out to god in the night and he answered me and now we are moving forward healed of past hurts and losses continually moving into a better place It may just be my perception, but I used to think that if I wasn't struggling with something, then I wasn't being authentic. When the question in a small group discussion came up asking where you failed this week, I never felt the freedom to say, you know, I didn't, you know, I had a really good week. In fact, I'm in a really good place. I like where I'm at right now, but thanks for asking. I don't want to be a man in constant need of being revived. I don't think that's healthy. I don't want that for my kids. I don't want my kids to feel like they're never living up to my standards and always need me to bail them out. I don't want that for anyone. I want to raise self-aware children that dialogue with their dad about their future, about investment decisions, and how they can take new risks for the kingdom of heaven. I don't want them feeling like they're losers in my sight. That helps no one. If I am in constant need of being revived, then I'm an addict. I'm not free, and it is for freedom that Jesus was sent to accomplish. I should always be progressing into a place of greater freedom. If not, there is something holding me back, and sadly, I think many people find a badge of honor in this position. No thanks. Not for me. I want to keep maturing as a son who is about his father's work, preparing to receive his inheritance so that his kingdom can keep advancing and that I can be a part of that dialogue at his table. I don't want to feel like I don't belong at that table. I belong because my father wants me there, just like I want my children in close with me as they grow in maturity. I don't know a woman in the world that wants her husband to tell her on a weekly basis how many times he has failed her, how many bad thoughts he has had against her, how many other women he stared at and Remind her constantly of what a rotten husband he is. That would get old really fast, and the woman would begin to wonder what her marriage was based on. If she kept putting up with that, she would only be enabling his poor self-identity. And the marriage is destined to stagnate and likely fail. It certainly wouldn't thrive on that kind of language. But of course, no marriage or relationship will be above the need for confession and forgiveness. But the bulk of the weight of the marriage must tip the scales in the positive direction. Always moving deeper in understanding, in deference, in mutual appreciation. If over time there isn't a growing sense of admiration and affection, it might be time to call it quits. Or at least look at a major overhaul. This language of rescue can indicate a false humility. False because it fails to examine the motive in hiding behind that image of always being in need of rescue. If I think of myself as a failure, as a sinner, then I don't have to try that hard. I don't have to want that much. I don't have to believe very high. I can have the appearance of nobility, but it's just fear protected with a fancy slipcover. These are ways that my personal language is evolving as my faith is deepening. These are words that I'm shying away from now. So what have I picked up as I discard the old? What are some of the new words and language that speak of this new growth and allows me to communicate in my new territory? I don't ever want to refer to myself by any name that is not mine in heaven. There, I am not known as loser or failure or even sinner. As I would never call either of my children a negative name, my Father in heaven will only speak of my truest identity. And my number one name in that category is beloved. It is a term of endearment from one to another. It says, I am highly regarded, I am watched over, I am much loved. This is how my Father in Heaven sees me, therefore it must be how I see myself. It is counterproductive to adopt a name like Sinning Saint. It stunts me and keeps me in a lower place. I am beloved and I will learn to revel in that place. It does me no good to adopt the name that isn't reflective of my true identity. And there's a reason it's difficult to do this. It's more risky. It's far easier to say I'm just a sinning saint than to call myself a warrior or an overcomer, let alone the beloved son of the King of Heaven. The audacity to say that. Yeah, that's me. Guilty as charged. This thought process has become second nature now that I've been away from the church as we know it for these many years, where I learned how to speak of my old identity with such ease and fluency. I see it so differently now. I see how I limited my faith by limiting my language as I referred to myself. It's not helpful, and I reject that old negative language. So like my dad, I say, watch your language. Don't speak of yourself in any terms that are not spoken of by your Heavenly Father. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.